Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from TheNextReal.com. And today we're talking about Minute 3, which begins with our scientists looking up into the stars and ends with them hitting a god with their car. Andy, what kind of jumped out <laughs> at you from this movie? Okay, so I was on a project, uh, you know, early in my uh, kind of film and video career where we were, I was working with a team that was out in the desert chasing dust devils. Now, they had a vehicle that was rigged up with all sorts of whirly gigs all over it that uh, I call them whirly gigs, but, you know, they're very scientific instruments that they that were all over this vehicle. And what we would do over the course of the days we were filming this project is they would chase dust devils and they would try to get their vehicle parked in the path of a dust devil so that when it went through the vehicle, it would spin all the little things and the scientific instruments all over the vehicle so that they would record all sorts of interesting data. And it was a really fun project to do just because we were doing such crazy stuff out in the middle of the desert. I had a great time. But I tell you this, they would never have <laughs> let me drive their vehicle, especially yeah. if it was dark and on a stormy night in the middle of the, uh, the desert. And, you know, I've never had that kind of experience, but I do remember from my, like, you know, eighth and ninth grade biology uh, science classes and the like, that safety in the scientific method was an important thing, you know, and that <laughs> researchers dying was generally frowned upon by, you know, grant-making funding boards and the like. And so I'm fairly certain that grabbing the wheel from the driver and pulling it in a different direction is also generally frowned upon as part of the research scientific method. So we're definitely kind of cutting some corners here among uh, the our, our scientific gang. And we're going to get into more of that and all sorts of things, but we want to tell you just a quick moment about how we keep the lights on around here. We love delivering content to our listeners that is free of ads that you don't want to hear. We also love producing this show for you, but it takes time and money. Can you become our Asgardian champion and help us out by becoming a member for this season? Membership is just $5 per month, or you can get a discount if you subscribe annually. Members get bonus content, early access to shows, access to live streams, and more. You can learn more at truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute. So let's talk about Darcy. And I have to admit, I, I love this character so much. We were planning to talk about her here. We already kind of got into her last last minute. Uh, I'll try to really not make this the Darcy Minute by Minute podcast. But <laughs> here I feel like is where she really starts to shine. You know, we get most of this minute is them driving towards the thing. And Eric seems like he's kind of just in the back, like holding on for dear life. Mostly what we have is Darcy and Jane. You know, Jane wants to go to the science. Darcy wants to stay alive. And they're literally fighting over the wheel. What, what do you think we kind of learn about Darcy in this minute? Well, it's uh, well, first, we learn that she's doing this for college credits, right? That's, yeah. uh, I think, an important line or an important moment and just a hilarious line. I'm not dying for six college credits. I love that. And this is the sort of personality that Darcy has. I love it when she says things like this. Um, in the film. And and so we get that sense of Darcy. But what's interesting about Jane that we're getting is that this is, again, more proof that the team has decided we're going to really change Jane up and not make her this, this uh, nurse that worked with uh, Dr. Donald Blake. She is going to actually be a presence. And, you know, 
I hate to say it when Eric calls her a storm chaser. Jane, he's kind of right. You really yeah. are the one who's <laughs> driving right into the tornado here. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how much that uh, works. I, I would probably be uh, like Darcy pulling that steering wheel, trying to get away from the giant uh, swirling cloud forming directly yeah. in front of me. And it's fun because I feel like we've learned so much about these two characters in this one minute, you know, in their interaction with each other and how they play off each other. And I mean, just, you know, one quick thing. I think the movie is now already past the Bechtel test because the two of them are like, you know, having this conversation back and forth. I think there's three lines of dialogue. There's certainly a lot of very significant looks. Um, and, and one of my favorite moments is, uh, and we'll get to kind of what it means about uh, Jane, but just from Darcy, you know, she has... Uh, Jane says, get closer. And Darcy clearly says, like, you know, ha, good one, as though assuming mm-hmm. it was right. a joke. Right. And Jane just kind of, like, ignores it. And then you just see this, like, very brief look of just, like, terror and recognition on, on Jane's face. And she's like, this is not physics for poets I signed up for. This is uh, Darcy, from, like, Darcy's face. Darcy's, Darcy's face, face yeah. yeah. And here again, the script actually made this a lot more clear. You know, in the script, I think Darcy says, oh, you're joking, aren't you? And Jane says, no. I really appreciate it when writers and directors trust the audience to pick it up. And I love that they kind of, they cut out some of the, the hit you over the head with it moments. And it still comes, that moment to me at least still comes through clear as day of Darcy just cannot even believe that Jane really wants to do this. Right. Yeah. She is hardcore ready to jump into this. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, as Darcy says in the script, keep the credits. I'll intern at Burger King. Like, right. like, like she's just interested in, in surviving. I, I, I think that it's a lot of fun. Um, but to your point, the filmmakers found a way to tighten this up so we don't need quite so much. I, I think what we have here gives us all we need as far as kind of that uh, kind of that back and forth. And we do also get the great moment of Jane, I feel like, and it, where, again, five seconds of facial expression says so much about her character. We get to see through the lens of her camera, which I think, as you pointed out, uh, might be a Sony or a Panasonic. We don't quite know. Uh, One or the uh, other, yeah. Uh, which, definitely an infrared, though. Which, given the world of incredible product placement that the MCU is going to be steering into, I kind of like that we don't know which one it is because there isn't a prominent shot of the the tag. But, you know, we get to see through it, like the the tornado hit. And a kind of human figure in bright infrared in the middle of the little tornado. And there's a literal explosion. And then the look on Jane's face isn't like, oh, no, what's happening? It's the like, kid at Christmas time. You know, she like laughs a little bit almost. And she's just, to me, that says so much about like for her, she's a real damn the torpedoes straight ahead. The science is there. And I feel like everything about that is captured right in that one moment. Yeah, I, I I mean, you might have better eyes than I did. I don't remember seeing the human figure uh, in this particular or like when when it's coming down and we have the whole explosion, and everything. I don't remember seeing it, but it's entirely possible that it's there. But what I do love about everything you're saying is when we see Jane's face as she is holding up the camera and like looking through it and filming all this, like she has the biggest smile of like glee and discovery, right? Like she is thrilled about what she's seeing here. She is capturing some new astronomical anomaly that mm-hmm. is very exciting to see. And I mean, yes, it's doing things that 
you probably haven't seen an astral anomaly do before, like, you know, shoot a giant cloud swirl into the ground like it does, which is is great. And she does show some surprise at what she's seeing. But still, for the most part, she is just thrilled about this, about the fact that, you know, she's like, you know, onto something here. For sure. And I, I did just go back and kind of double check. It's right around uh, the 32nd second. So I guess uh, timestamp would be about like 329. You, you just see sort of this. It, it's this like thing of fire coming down, but it looks kind of like vaguely. Hu- it, it could be a human shape or it could be a cello, frankly. But there's definitely <laughs> sort of like it, it, it looks like like a smaller circle on the top and then kind of like two bigger circles below it. And, and so that's what I mean by the vaguely humanoid shape. Like it's not sure, a definite sure. human but it feels like something that shouldn't be at the heart of a tornado, to be sure. And I feel like that's oh, yeah. part of what sh- what Jane gets so excited about. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's such an interesting thing to kind of be seeing and mm-hmm. uh, and to be afraid of, as, as Darcy clearly is. Right now, what do you think is happening in this moment? I think you point you point out in our notes that this is kind of the most explosive and grand trip through the Bifrost we ever see. Yeah. yeah. And here's where I don't. I'm not sure I understand the the science of Asgard because. Well, I guess, I mean, they, they walk literally across the Bifrost sometimes, but then other times they just have, it, it, the Bifrost seems kind of like a beam me up Scotty kind of a thing. And, and cause I guess that's what's happening here, right? It's that Odin was able, as we learn later, to kind of just open up this gateway and that, that's always the Bifrost that they're traveling through. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, I, I think it's an interesting element. I mean, you have an element of this rainbow bridge literally in Asgard that goes from like the palace down to the observatory where Heimdall is, right? That they ride across that we'll certainly be talking about more as we see it in the course of this film. But it's like once you get to that observatory where Heimdall is and he opens up the Bifrost and he's, he uses his swords to kind of, kind of point it to the right direction, when the people go into it, it's almost like they're beaming through a rainbow is kind of how it's depicted in the film. Right. It's not like they're riding on a bridge, like a literal bridge um, on the first half of it. It literally is like being beamed, which is very interesting. And I, I can't wait to talk about that a lot more as we will. So the only thing that I can think of in this particular case is that it's because it's being operated a little differently, right? We, As we'll learn uh, Odin is operating it not with Heimdall's sword, but with his right. with Odin's staff, Gung, Gungdal. You know, he's using his staff, which now we know, or we will learn at that point, can control the Bifrost, and he's doing something that is very different. Like he's actually casting someone out. He's like forcibly pushing somebody through the Bifrost to Earth, as opposed to somebody willingly saying, "I want to go there." So I was thinking maybe it's involved in the way that it happens, that it's such a forceful being cast out that creates such a funnel cloud like we the likes of which we've never seen. You know, kind of going back to what we were discussing yesterday when we talked about why is it New Mexico specifically? Again, I can headcanon anything. I wonder if maybe Odin is picked, like, cause it could well be just sort of like, all right, straight path to Earth. You're just going to hit whatever part of Earth is like closest to us in the rotation at that moment. But I do wonder if maybe there's a thought of like, yeah, if we send him to Norway, if we send him to Minnesota, like if we send him to a place where they all know the Norse gods, it's not going to be as hard for him. Like we want to send him to a place where no one's going to be like, oh, a Norse god. That's what we all think about here in New Mexico. Yeah. We'll get into later the uh, just wonderfully helpful coincidence that we happen to have a scientist on hand who grew up learning Norse mythology. But that's, you know, since we'll discuss in later parts of the movie. I, I think that there's an interesting element of the fact that he is ending up in a place that is so vastly different from 
generally what we think of as Norway, at least in my head, I usually think of it in, in, you know, buried, buried in snow. And, yeah. and here we have it, uh, you know, it's very dry. It's very deserty. And, you know, I don't know about you. I, I live in the desert currently and, you know, we will have these periodic haboobs roll through where it's like this giant dust storm. And I tell you, when you're in these dust storms, you go a lot slower, you be a lot more cautious because you, you really can't see like more than 10 feet in front of your, where you are. Right. And so, you know, I, I do think that Darcy's being very smart. And because the last thing I would want is to be driving during a dust storm only to have a figure rise up in front of me that I just couldn't see because they were 10 feet away from me. Well, especially because, as it turns out, even if Jane's goal is to get as close to the science as possible so that we can study the science, I generally believe that running over the science with your car <laughs> tends to adversely affect scientific <sighs> results. You know, like exactly. if it had been, there was this like thing that landed in the desert and now like the the markings and like the, the pattern of the sand being blown in different directions. Driving over that with your car is not going to be good for the scientific process, you know? So I, yeah. I, I think it does sort of fit this idea of Jane as kind of, kind of in a nice way. She's not like the world's perfect scientist. She's the person who's so excited that she's kind of tripping over her own feet to get there. Yeah. The other thing that I think is great is I do like Selvig, as I said, mostly kind of literally takes the back seat while the two women are kind of deciding what's going to happen. But I do like that his one, like the one line he gets that's really memorable is he says, like, I thought you said this was a subtle Aurora. Because <laughs> right. to me, it's it what you get there is, yes, he's skeptical. Yes, he's cynical. But now the moment that something has happened, he's done a 180. Now he's fully on board with her. He's not, you know, he could just be like, oh, well, it's still just an Aurora. Maybe you're wrong. He's just like, oh, okay, cool. The thing you were looking for is here. Let's talk about it because it's actually so much more than even you said. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I do want to just justify a little bit with Jane. I want to look at it from her perspective. Okay. As I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, having worked with scientists who had a vehicle that was designed to drive into something. Now, I don't think Jane necessarily knew she would be driving into something. My understanding is she was just going to be recording these anomalies as they happened in the sky, as they right. should have been. Um, but still, I like to think that because this anomaly is happening, and she has this magnetometer that she's attached to the top of the van. As she drives into it, I would like to think that what it's doing, and we'll actually have evidence of this later, that it's recording something. It's actually creating some recordings of what is happening. And I think that's probably why she wanted to drive into it, so that she could actually get these readings as close right. as possible to the object. So just you know, playing devil's advocate here. You know, and I get that. I have an aunt and uncle who met because they both thought a fun job was to drive small little airplanes into the middle of tornadoes. So, like, clearly, oh. and hurricanes, clearly, this is the thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I think the idea of, well, if you're studying, if you're an astronomer, an astrophysicist, and you're studying the thing happening in the sky, worrying about what happens when the thing in the sky crash lands to Earth and you might hit it, you're right. Probably not part of the, the, the thought consideration there. <laughs> Yeah, not exactly. Not exactly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I'd like to also think that as a responsible um, scientist who is bringing on interns to help her, that she would al have also had those conversations with her interns to say, you know, these are the sorts of things that we may be doing. I want to make sure you're prepared for that. 
there, I'm at least going to um, – I'm not going to blame Jane for that because I think Darcy is 100 percent the sort who would be like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, whatever. And well, just, you know, true. completely ignore it, especially in a moment of danger. Well, and again, to that point, like this is not the sort of anomaly they were expecting, right? Like all these anomalies have been things that have happened in the sky. They've all been these subtle auroras as, as Eric reminds her. So the fact that this is some totally different type of anomaly – and again, to the point that you had last time – about the fact that this likely wasn't what we were, what Jane had actually been waiting for. It's something that just circumstantially happened to happen at the exact same time. But it's like, it's something is coming down from the heavens. And I think that it, it is a totally different type of thing that none oh, of them sure. really would have been waiting for. So, you know, this is a couple of paleontologists who think they've discovered a place where, like, a dragon bone, a, a dragon, a dinosaur bone might be dug up. And it turns out they actually walked into Jurassic Park. You know, I mean, clearly yeah. this is a level beyond what they're expecting. Right. Exactly. Now, as I think it's going to be a theme uh, throughout this, this minute, I think we really have a lot of the story is told not just in what not just in the dialogue or the or the actors or or the visuals, but in the sound. Uh, what are some of like the sound cues that you picked up on this minute that really help kind of like inform us about what's happening now? What I love about the way that they play with this this particular atmospheric disturbance is because I mean, if anyone's looked at the aurora borealis, it doesn't make any sound. It's up there, and you look at it, but you don't hear twinkling or anything like that. This particular atmospheric disturbance, I mean, we are hearing like this kind of whooshing sound that kind of is growing and this rumble that starts kind of growing like a thunder sort of sound which actually ties nicely into what it is actually delivering but it actually feels much more like a storm like you you right. actually feel like that there are sounds of a storm brewing and that is much more what it uh what it feels like plus you know patrick doyle's music playing so all of that i think very effectively tells us this is something more yeah i really love a movie where you can watch it the first time, and some things maybe subconsciously hit you, but you don't really pick up on them. And then once you kind of know the thing that's building to, you go back and you're like, oh my God, that, that thing I missed, but it's there and it's so beautiful and subtle. And so the fact that at, right at the end, you hear the sound that we'll later know is the sound of the Bifrost closing, you know, right. is just to me such a brilliant, because like, yeah. I had never heard what a Bifrost sounds when it closes before I watched this movie. So, of course, I didn't make that connection. And I don't even think that when I heard the Bifrost actually connect, I my brain didn't jump back to three seconds of audio I heard half an hour beforehand in the movie. But knowing what that sounds like, then when I went back and watched it again, I was like, oh, oh yeah, that is what I'm hearing. That's really cool. And I just love little details like that. And what I think they do very effectively here is the, you know, the filmmakers, Kenneth Branagh, the, the effects team, the sound design team. I, going back to our point, what we've been saying quite often so far is that it all feels kind of like a scientific thing that is actually happening. Nothing seems magical, right? It just seems like a storm that appears very quickly out of the blue. It looks like a tornado uh, funnel cloud that kind of forms from this kind of appearance in the sky comes down to earth and it's just whirling and swirling it it feels like a very sudden yeah i don't i wouldn't say that it's scientifically probable but that's what it, it feels like a scientific some sort of electrical tornado storm that suddenly appeared in the desert it doesn't feel like out of the realm of possibility 
I think that's such a good point you bring up because it also establishes something that's going to become a foundational idea of the MCU and, and was really a foundational idea of some of the comics, though the MCU, I think, leans into it a lot more. And it's one that to me as a, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I have a theological background, a very progressive uh, liberal perspective and a very science focused one. And in that kind of in that school of like where theology can meet science, there's often this sort of idea of and something I think you can see a lot if you study history that magic or religion often exists in the world of the things that humanity has not yet scientifically figured out. So at a time when the idea no one has any idea why the sun actually is pulled across the sky. People think, okay, maybe it's a, a you know a god with his chariot and his horses or something like that, and maybe that's what controls the tides, is a, a, a moon goddess or whatever. And I think that's an idea. You know, Einstein who was actually a very religious Jewish man. He wrote wonderful things about this concept of like studying the universe because of this idea of like like you know that the the next thing over the horizon is where God lives. I think he said something like that. But that we always push that lens. And I feel like Marvel really, the MCU really leans into that with this idea of whatever we today think is religion or magic, it, there is a scientific understanding for it. We just haven't figured it out yet. And yeah. I feel like that's very much a part of what we're going to learn is that these aren't actual gods. They are God. They are people who have a, a scientific level of advancement wildly beyond ours. And so because it's so hard for the human brain, especially in 800 or the 8th century, whenever it was that they last had contact with humans in Norway, in Scandinavia, that people thought of them as gods. They think of it as magic. But to them, it's, it, is, it all does have a scientific explanation. And it's fun to kind of know, like, to me, I think a lot of the more mystical sides of the MCU, I might not have connected enough uh, as much to if they didn't have that grounding, because it would have felt too, like, way up in the clouds. And so I love that, like, this is the moment where that first starts to get introduced of everything that's happening to these people. It might look crazy. It might look totally out there, but it is the scientists who discover it. It's not just a random shopkeeper. It's not a nurse who would really think this is just magic. It is scientifically minded people who first discover it. I feel like that is it's funny that that is going to be wind up being a foundational moment for the entire MCU going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly in this film, because I mean, that very point is discussed in more depth uh, as we kind of hit a point uh, in this film where they're having a conversation about it. So I, I, I find that really interesting and I'm really looking forward to even in the next couple of minutes discussing more about, you know, the difference between as guardians and mid guardians and, and, uh, you know, all of the different, um, ways that these beings exist. So it's going to be, uh, allow for some fun conversations. So, um, we don't actually need to hit the 30 minute mark in every episode. I think in this minute, there's, there's <laughs> a lot of it is just kind of driving. It's a lot of character moments. Is there any other kind of last things about this episode you wanted to get into? Not really. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this mysterious dark figure in the blowing dust and that they hit, uh, with their car, which, uh, you know, we will, uh, certainly talk about more. Who in could the that next be? Minute. What a I mystery. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And as always, I, I love the stuff you're bringing. Uh, I'm learning so much about this. I hope this is true of all of our listeners. I hope you're getting so much out of this. I hope you're participating in all the social media and the Discord and the ways to be a part of conversation. But more than anything, just I'm glad you're listening. Thank you so much for the support and have a great day. Until next time, true believers.
Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.